We are a country of great contradictions. And this virus, in every way, has laid bare the ways in which we operate in two worlds simultaneously. On one hand, we're a country that prides itself on being ahead of the curve when it comes to medicine, technology, science. Yet in the winter of 2020, none of this mattered much to most Americans. I mean, I've mentioned this before on this program about how in March, just days before the lockdown, I'd been at a conference, had lunch with a friend. I'd later discover that person would test positive for COVID-19. Now, over 100 days into the pandemic, it's clear we had no idea what was in store for us as a nation and as a world. But there are some people out there who did. People who knew a global pandemic was right around the corner. And today, we're talking to one of them about how unprepared we are and what this means for us. The nation seems to have almost surrendered, like thrown up its arms and given up this fight, which is a bizarre situation and I think sets us up for a really difficult summer ahead. From Neon Hunt Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this moment. Two years ago, Ed Young wrote a story for The Atlantic. The headline was, Is America Ready for a Global Pandemic? Spoiler alert, the answer was no. In this article, he talked about the ways the U.S. was equipped. It has a robust public health agency, the CDC, the National Institutes of Health, nationwide vaccination programs, and some of the best research hospitals in the world. But there were problems on the horizon. Public health in this country is generally underfunded, and we have had shortages of medical supplies in the past, like during Hurricane Maria. Containing a pandemic requires massive coordination at both the local and the national level, Ed wrote. Getting stockpiles of masks out of warehouses, hospitals finding space to quarantine sick patients, doctors need to document symptoms and share information. In that 2018 story, Ed quoted the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, Anthony Fauci, the guy who we all know now. He says, quote, it's like a chain, one weak link and the whole thing falls apart. You need no weak links, unquote. Ed may have sounded the alarm on a global pandemic, but like everyone else in March, his mind wasn't on COVID. Back then, he was taking time off from the Atlantic to work on a book. But as New York City started to see an uptick in COVID-19 cases, he put his book on pause and started covering the virus full time. It was in March when it became clear not only that this was a pandemic and that it was going to be a defining generational event, but that America in particular was not ready for it anywhere near the extent that people thought it was. At first, Ed had faith that the U.S. could gear up and avoid a catastrophe. It has not. It, it really has failed in quite a spectacular way. And I think the, the seeds of that failure were germinating furiously in March and were, were already evident then. 
Ed knew all the tools in the pandemic arsenal. Jargon we now know too. Flattening the curve, social distancing, stay-at-home orders. I think the assumption was that testing would be a simple thing that a country as wealthy and resourced as the US could easily do. So the fact that testing is still a problem it is truly baffling to me. Yes, it has gone up. There is much more testing done than ever before, but it took a long time to get there. You know, these are not difficult procedures to do. Um, and yet the US took a long time to do it. Um, they took a long time to pivot when the original test created by the CDC didn't work. It's such a key element. How did the US mess this up so badly? Despite how slowly the government ramped up on COVID testing, Ed says individual Americans have adopted certain measures surprisingly quick. I'm not sure I would have predicted that the country would rally in quite the way that it did to widely accept social distancing, um, both to do it and to be supportive of it. And I think that really helped. But the time that social distancing bought was not wisely used by the government, with the result that many states were forced to reopen without the testing and tracing capacity necessary to control the virus, which is why we are in the place where we are now, with newly surging case numbers in places like Texas, Arizona, California, Florida, and more. Americans had a chance to beat back the virus and blew it. And it seems too many Americans have run out of patience. The nation seems to have almost surrendered, like thrown up its arms and given up this fight, which is a bizarre situation and I think sets us up for a really difficult summer ahead. One of the reasons we're in this position, Ed says, is that we aren't listening to our scientists. He's pointed out in his reporting that President Obama responded to the Ebola outbreak by leaning heavily on science and on experts, including Fauci, to guide him. Uh, people were understandably afraid. Uh, and if we're honest, uh, some stoked those fears. But we believe that if we made policy based not on fear, but on sound science and good judgment, America could lead an effective global response while keeping the American people safe. President Trump has adopted a different approach, one that relies on quite a bit of magical thinking. While sporting events and large gatherings are considered high risk, President Trump held a rally indoors in Tulsa, Oklahoma, roughly 6,000 packed together like sardines, no social distancing. Trump hasn't been great with the facts either, let's be honest. And that's a charitable way of putting it. Now we have tested almost 40 million people. By so doing, we show cases, 99% of which are totally harmless. But that's not entirely accurate. Roughly 15 to 20% of COVID patients will require hospitalization. We've learned masks are one of the easiest ways to protect ourselves. Emerging research shows it can lessen the amount of droplets in the air, droplets that could contain the coronavirus. Masks have become an easy way to lower transmission. President Trump wore a mask in public for the first time last week. It was also clear the federal leadership from the Trump administration was going to be a big problem in terms of its lack of coordination, its lack of clear, consistent, evidence-based communication. This was something that I and others had predicted many years ago, even before Trump had been inaugurated as president, and all of those things had come true. 
There are, of course, many reasons that COVID has run rampant in the U.S. But it's hard not to look at other countries that have gotten it under control and wonder, what could it have been like here if national leadership had taken it seriously and approached it scientifically from the start? But we didn't, and now the U.S. is the country that has been hit hardest. As of July 16th, there are 3.5 million Americans suffering from COVID-19, and 138,000 have died. Health crises of this magnitude are not a rarity for the office. Reagan and Bush Sr. dealt with the AIDS crisis. Clinton, West Nile, George W. Bush, SARS, and Obama faced the H1N1 flu pandemic, MERS, Ebola, and Zika. It might be par for the course for presidents, but each administration handles it differently and federal coordination at some level does matter. With states differing on shutdowns and guidelines, one state is only as safe as its most dangerous neighbor. The fact of the matter is that COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon. One troubling discovery about COVID is that it's not a disease that strikes and then cleanly retreats. In some patients, it can stay for a while. So there are thousands of people, um, many of whom call themselves long haulers, who have experienced symptoms of COVID-19 for months now. Months. And Ed's not just talking about a lingering cough. This is a disease that has been caricatured as one that is either rarely severe. So in a small number of cases, it sends people to hospitals and forces them to be intubated and ventilated and provided with extra oxygen. Or you get a very mild disease that has been described as being a bit like the common cold. But that is not true for a lot of people with COVID um, who are not getting better in the two-week time frame where the disease is supposed to run for. There are people who might not be sick enough to require oxygen, but are still completely incapacitated by their symptoms. Including memory fogs, gastrointestinal problems, shortness of breath, um, just crushing extreme fatigue that prevents them from doing any of the normal bits of daily life that the rest of us have managed to partake of during stay-at-home orders. These people are left out of the COVID-19 narrative. Many of them have never been even tested, so they don't count towards cases. They certainly don't count towards deaths or hospitalizations or recoveries. And there's this huge group of people then, therefore, who are very sick. In the beginning of the pandemic, there was this misconception that COVID-19 patients were only the elderly or people with long-standing health issues. But that wasn't the case. Many of them were young, many of them were fit and healthy and active. And I think that should make everyone else concerned about the very rushed move to reopen the country. It's concerning if this idea continues to perpetuate, that young people don't get sick, because it's not true. A lot of young people feel invincible. You know, they sort of think that this is a virus that only affects the elderly and that they will escape unscathed. Well, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of young Americans have not escaped unscathed. And that number of people who might have medium or even long-term disability as a result of COVID-19 is only going to grow as this new surge of infections continues. COVID hits young and old causes a wide variety of symptoms, 
and sometimes sticks around for months. But the hope is that eventually we'll have a vaccine and our society and our bodies will go back to normal. But it's becoming clear that COVID may have some even longer-term health effects. We think of this disease, like many others, in very binary terms, in terms of death or recovery, with the idea that recovery means bouncing back to full health. Well, it's not going to be like that. Um, a lot of people who actually have been hospitalized are going to be suffering the long-term consequences of being in an ICU bed, being hooked up to a ventilator. That stuff doesn't go away when you leave the hospital. And even the people who haven't been to hospital, the, these long haulers, a lot of them are going to be sick for some time. It's here, and in some form, it's here to stay. I don't want to, you know, freak everyone out by thinking that everyone who's still got symptoms now is still going to be sick forevermore. But we know from previous viral infections, other outbreaks of the past, that a certain proportion of people progress to long-term disability. A lot of them will end up with symptoms that look like myalgic encephalomyelitis, or ME, what's known as chronic fatigue syndrome. They will continue to experience crushing fatigue for a long period of time, um, for years, for maybe more. Pandemics impact people for generations. There have already been economic consequences, and that won't go away anytime soon. It will take a while for businesses to get back on their feet. And it's hard not to imagine that this time will make people more conservative and less likely to take risks with their money. Studies of traumatic events like natural disasters show upticks in depression, PTSD, and alcoholism. And studies of the 1918 flu pandemic show that children born during that time ended up being shorter, less educated, and at higher rates of physical disability. Another area of concern for Ed, the healthcare system, and how it can support people living with long-term chronic disabilities due to COVID-19. To be honest, America is truly terrible at caring for people with long-term disability and chronic illness. It is not a country whose health system is geared towards looking after this very marginalized group of people. And that group is going to increase in number. I think the only hope is that the pandemic, by increasing that population substantially, will shine a light on it, will increase funding and resources towards studying these kinds of protracted post-viral experiences um, in a way that will help a large group of people who already have very similar conditions, but maybe not. So what might ending the pandemic look like? I published a big piece called How the Pandemic Will End. And I said that there were going to be three possible end games. One of them was that we would eliminate the virus. That seemed unlikely at the time and seems almost impossible to even contemplate now. The other was that we were going to go towards herd immunity, which is the idea that enough of the people, enough of the population is infected that uh, the virus cannot find um, new hosts to spread towards easily um, and just fizzles out. We are nowhere near that point yet, but we might get to it at the cost of American lives. The better option is that we play this protracted game of whack-a-mole with the virus, trying to crush it wherever it raised its head again as it popped up in different parts of the country. That is the challenge that faces us now. And, you know, are we going to, to meet that challenge? Are we going to rise up to meet it? I am not hugely optimistic. Those pieces that I wrote in March and April still stand up. The one thing that is different in my mind is 
my sense of America's capacity to rally in the face of this. Clearly, we have seen some heroic efforts from healthcare workers, from many um, governors and mayors, but it has not been enough without a coordinating federal hand. Our healthcare system has deep-rooted issues, but lately, they have been more visual than usual. I think you can draw a straight line between the pandemic um, and the Black Lives Matter protests that have happened recently, in that we had a long time, a long period of the weakening of American institutions. I think that process became abundantly clear in the nation's failed response to the pandemic. Um, And I think between that, the clear and stark disparities in how uh, COVID-19 was disproportionately infecting and killing Black people as a result of this long-standing pattern of healthcare inequity that goes back to even the end of the Civil War. Black and Latino populations are four to five times more likely to end up hospitalized due to COVID-19, the CDC says. Some of this is due to decades of systemic racism. Because of racial housing segregation, which includes redlining and mortgage discrimination, Black people and other marginalized groups are more likely to live in densely populated areas. Because of this, they're also more likely to develop asthma and underlying conditions that make them more susceptible to COVID-19. Poorer populations are also just more likely to be exposed, living in closer quarters, working essential jobs, and relying on public transit. They're less likely to have paid sick leave and have a harder time stockpiling supplies. The recognition that America's institutions have failed really badly led to this feeling uh, of being ripe for systemic change. If you add to that the murders of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmed Arbery, of George Floyd, a man who had survived COVID-19, It is not a surprise, I think, that a very frustrated country rose up in protest against yet another failed institution, yet another sign of systemic problems in the making. Revolution is in the air. American society was already something of a pressure cooker. COVID turned up the temperature, and the death of George Floyd kicked the lid right off. The change in popular support for Black Lives Matter recently, the scale of the protests, to me, that has actually been the only encouraging sign of the past several months. It suggests that um, America is capable of recognizing systemic problems that it had once long overlooked. And let us be very clear that everything about the pandemic, you know, all the things that made it worse are systemic in nature, are long-standing in nature, and will need to be addressed as such. The fact that the country is ready for that kind of change suggests that maybe it can learn a lesson from this. Maybe it can be better prepared for pandemics of the future, but who knows? We still have the summer and the fall to get through. This energy we're seeing around the country, it shows that we have the power to demand change. With increasing globalization, we're only going to see more situations like the COVID-19 pandemic in our future. What will we ask of our institutions? Demand of our leaders? We talk about a new normal, but this, hundreds of thousands of Americans dead, it cannot be our new normal. A big thank you to Ed Young for sharing his insight with us. 
Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Before we leave you today, I wanted to let you know, if you didn't know already, that Neon Hum does a whole bunch of other things besides Telescope. We're producing a whole series of original shows, and they're coming out this fall. And we recently partnered with a number of media organizations to produce new shows, like Murder on the Towpath, a show that we produced with Luminary and Film Nation, hosted by Soledad O'Brien. If you're interested in other projects that Neon Hum Media has under our belt, you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter. Our website is neonhum.com. You'll find interesting behind-the-scenes detail about this show and all of our other shows. So check us out, neonhum.com. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Joanna Clay, it was edited by Vikram Patel and Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear in this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media. You can join our Facebook group by searching for Telescope. If you like the show, please remember to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.